Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. What is the right asset allocation approach in the current market environment? Where are the investment opportunities in the Canadian and U.S. markets in the coming months? To answer these questions and more, we're joined today by Portfolio Managers David Wolf and David Talk of Fidelity's Global Asset Allocation Team, who join host Pamela Ritchie. Today, David and David look at where we are in the business cycle and if inflation is more structurally entrenched than markets are accounting for. Also, what's behind the up, down, up, down markets we've seen this year and what could be next from central banks. This podcast was recorded on August 10th, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. David Talk, if you don't mind, I'll begin with you just asking you to sort of put this into perspective. There is jubilation in global equity markets, U.S. markets in particular. You see the dollar come off a little bit. Is this the right market reaction? I think it's a feeling of relief, I think, on the market's part, given that we've come off a long sequence of inflation prints that have been higher than what the market had expected previously. And that raised the specter of more aggressive Fed hikes and the likely inevitability of a recession on the back of that. So, so to see something on the other side of consensus, certainly I think is is a cause for a little bit of, of relief, I suppose. But when we look at the numbers itself and not just relative to consensus, I mean, inflation still is dramatically elevated, increasingly so within the core metrics that I think you know have a lot more persistence. And you spoke off the top about the move in gasoline prices and oil prices more generally that you know, a lot of us were able to see coming, but it's that persistent element to underlying inflation that, you know, I think still keeps the Fed focused on taking interest rates higher. They're approaching that nebulous cloud known as neutral. And mm-hmm. I think the expectation is that they'll need to take policy tighter than where they are now. So any sustained hope that, you know, we're really beyond the stage of tighter policy, I think that's very much misplaced. And I understand the market's jubilation for a day, but in the fullness of time, I still think that you know inflation is a challenge that will need to be addressed, and tighter policy inevitably will bring economies around the world to much lower levels of output. There's something, David, talk that's been sort of discussed, batted back and forth. This discussion of whether quantitative tightening and the extent to which can be—I mean, can you put it in terms of an extra rate hike, or how how might you measure that within the markets one way or the other? Do do you feel that's been accomplished in some way? Is it is it in the markets? Well, if you look at the response of of yields, I mean, certainly since the Fed embarked on this endeavor, we have seen a tightening in financial conditions through higher yields. So to some extent, I think the Fed is is watching this very carefully and are trying to calibrate, you know, the right policy response, both through what they're doing with their their uh, their policy interest rate, but also through the rest of their balance sheet. But again, when you think about Fed policy or, or central bank policy more generally, when compared to a neutral level versus tight, you know, it was an easy 
first couple of steps to take policy towards neutral. I mean, it was very obvious that the excessive accommodation that was in place before was woefully inappropriate. But you know, now we're in that harder to gauge uh, part of the cycle. So the Fed will be much more responsive to how the data unfolds. And you know, you had CPI today, but you had non-farm payrolls just last week that sent a very different message, perhaps, about you know underlying momentum in the economy. So. You know, I think this is part and parcel why central banks have also stepped away from providing a lot of forward guidance because, you know, they're now at a point where they need to be a lot more careful and, and need to be much more intuitive as to how their steps influence the economy. So to give the market a lot of handholding through this period, I think uh, that theme, I think, is, is long and gone. So we're all kind of flying a little bit more blind here, but that's that's the fun of the game. That's the fun of the game. That's right. That's why everyone's in it here. David, for some time, and you've written about this lately, sort of economic shocks were were set up to look at demand shocks, basically. And I'm curious sort of if there's a new view on that, essentially, and how you view that. And, you know, this has been a supply shock. I mean, we've been in the midst of supply shock after supply shock. Were the models set up to catch that, really? The... Let me let me come to the question about supply shocks in sort of a roundabout way and, and talk about our approach with respect to modeling generally and understanding what models can do and, and can't do. And, and this really has more to do with structurally our process and how we approach asset allocation rather than sort of the specifics of what's happening right now on inflation or growth or interest rates or what have you. So when we think about models, everybody in this business as models, everybody thinks their models are really good, and a lot of the models are really good, but everybody thinks their models are unique and special and can drive out performance, and that's not true. And the reason it's not true is everybody has the same data, everybody has the same techniques, everybody has the same type of smart people who put the models together. Um, and if everybody is is crafting the same sort of models, and, and David and I have been buy side, sell side, public sector, we've seen, you know, the, the models all tend to be similar. And if everybody's using the same model, everybody's going to perform the same and it's going to be well discounted and you're not going to get the differentiation on performance that you think you're going to have because you have a special model, which you don't. So we use a lot of modeling. We do think it's, it's a useful exercise. We think it's a very important thing to anchor uh, our process and the, the kind of structure as well as the active allocation that we have in the funds. But really what we're doing in terms of trying to outperform and uh, our active allocation tilts is understanding where the models are going to be wrong. Because models are always wrong. They're models. They're limited by, in particular, the one history that we have and, and the you know, 40, 56 years of data that's in there. And you know, new stuff happens, different stuff happens. And by having a real good understanding of what the models can catch and what they can't catch, we have the opportunity to actually add to performance by picking off the models because they're not going to be able to see necessarily what actually is going to happen. And so circling back around, Pamela, to the point about supply shocks. So as you know, and as we talked about, I think, on this very webcast a year ago, we had been quite aggressively positioned for an increase in inflation in an environment where transitory was the word of the day. Very few people were giving credit to the fact that inflation was likely to go up and stay up. You um, were. You were. Yeah, we were. Um, and, and the reason we were is exactly this modeling point, which is all of the models that are used to forecast inflation, including among the central banks, 
were really, they basically took all the supply curves out of their model because all you've had for the last 30 years are demand shocks. And to make the models more parsimonious, if supply doesn't matter, you just take that stuff out and just focus on demand. So we knew that central banks, as well as market participants who are running the same sort of models, would miss the kind of imbalance between demand and supply that was significantly coming from supply that was driving prices higher. And so what did we do? We tilted our funds pretty aggressively towards assets that would be more resilient to inflation. So that's tips, real return bonds, gold. We held a bit more Canada than we usually do with its commodity linkage. We trim back our equity risk as well as our duration in anticipation of the fact that eventually, and it actually happened sooner than we thought, central banks were going to get their backs up and have to deal with this inflation, even if their models didn't really understand where it was coming from. And that helped us outperform. So all to say, and I know that was uh, that was a long answer, but all to say that, you know, models are a really important part of what all of us do, but the, the route to outperformance is not to rely on models that you think are unique but aren't, but actually to understand what models everyone is using and see how you can position to take advantage of the weaknesses that those models have. It's it's fascinating. And it's fascinating sort of going back over the past year, as you say, to sort of look at what you were looking at. David Talk, maybe just to sort of fold into that overall discussion, what has a, a bit of a persistent undershooting of inflation from, from central banks meant, actually? I mean, I know it's sort of an obvious question at this point. Many will say the Fed is behind, but what else do you see there? Yeah, I mean, definitely central banks, you know, have been behind the curve through this. And I think they can be forgiven in the initial stage of the pandemic. I mean, if we go back through financial history, when we see these type of shocks, both on the demand side and on the supply side, you know, the the history books will suggest, you know, you need to go big. And we saw that coordinated, not just from central banks, but also from fiscal policy. So, you know, in contrast to the very grinding recovery, for instance, from 2008, where you didn't really have a full fiscal engagement, you had both barrels of policy firing at the same time, and it proved to be, you know, extremely effective at that point. So, you know, that I think when we were working through the COVID early stages, and we weren't sure exactly how persistent the shock would be. You know, that that was the appropriate policy response. But I think as things became clear that, you know, the nature of the shock on the demand side could potentially be fixed as, as economies reopen and as folks re-engage with their wider world, but that the supply side, and it's not just, you know, supply chains and some of the very sort of COVID specific issues here, it was really you know, a fundamental imbalance between the demand and supply of labor. So that's another type of really persistent shock that central bank models have evolved to view as responding pretty quickly. Uh, supply side responses can be very quickly. And when it doesn't respond very quickly, then you see that persistence in the inflation story that needs to be, you know, resolved with higher wages where, you know, you can still see shortages of labor, even if you pay people more because you have to get, you know, above a reservation wage that conceivably is higher. So it's those kind of issues that, you know, central banks felt that they had a grasp on, realized they didn't. And, you know, that's why we're seeing the, this, the, the form of aggressive rate hikes now where the old adage was that, you know, monetary policy can take the elevator down, namely large cuts, but always takes the escalator up. Now that whole adage has been flipped on its head where central banks are now trying to catch up by taking the elevator up. But, you know, again, as we 
enter that cloud of neutral right now where it's a lot more ambiguous as to you know the tightening that will happen and how interest rate sensitive economies around the world are. You know, I think that's where it's going to get a lot more interesting. Let me just add on there because uh, my colleague is both generous and polite and maybe a little less so myself. And the central banks messed up, you know, and their job was inflation and they didn't do, didn't do their jobs. They relied on models that were incorrect and notwithstanding the fact that that allowed us to, to add some performance in our funds from a public policy view, it's a big mistake. And now they have to fix it. And that's why, as, as DT just mentioned, they're having to take the elevator up and really tighten a lot more aggressively than anything that we've seen over the past, well, really 30 years since, since 1994. We're talking on, oh, sorry, go ahead. The, no, please go ahead. Well, I just wanted to go into the weeds of the recession that we're sort of all talking about right now, based on on what you're saying, is, I mean, what has this made for the likelihood of a recession one way or the other? The likelihood of recession, in my view, is quite high. It's quite a bit higher in Canada than it is in the U.S., and, and we can get to that momentarily. But basically what's happening, as I mentioned, is the central banks are trying to catch up after having let inflation get away from them. And, you know, as DT mentioned, they can be forgiven to some degree. And it's not clear that if they had seen the inflation coming, they would have really been able to do much more about it, given how much supply shocks really contributed to this. But they would have gotten started earlier and they could be gentler. And now that they've been you know, late to the game, so to speak, they have to catch up. And that's why you're seeing the aggressiveness of tightening. And given where inflation and given where the economy is and how tight the labor market is, how high activity is, central banks even if they don't want to, and certainly they don't want to say this publicly, they actually need to cause a recession, i.e. they need to reintroduce some slack to the economy in order to get inflation back down and get it closer to target. Um, and obviously right now, even though we had a downside surprise today, we're very far away from target. So the the recession that everybody is worried about, say, oh, you know, Fed is never going to do that, Bank Canada is never going to do that, a recession at this point, again, this may not be the way they publicly talk about it, but it actually is more of a, a feature than a bug in the sense that if you want to get inflation down, you need slack in the economy. And the only way to get slack in the economy is if it undershoots its potential growth rate. And potential growth is very low. And so you probably have to get negative numbers to get that slack in. Let's ask you now the difference between, you know, how different a story it is in the U.S. versus Canada, we saw Canada, you know, somewhat aggressively going after the the rate hikes. I mean, not as aggressively as maybe other places, but they were sort of at the top of the pile of who moved first. How different is the story in Canada to the U.S.? Yeah, I think the primary difference is the interest rate sensitivity of the two economies. And that's, again, the channel through which monetary policy impacts the economy are on interest rate sensitive sectors. And the glaring difference that we've talked about for quite some time is that the U.S. basically took their medicine after the 08 housing market cycle. So household debt to income, that ratio in the United States has fallen pretty considerably uh, through that balance, that period of balance sheet repair. Meanwhile, Canada uh, continued to take additional uh, debt. Canadian households continued to add to those debt balances, and that even accelerated through the pandemic. So when we think a little bit about, you know, for a given increase in policy, 
where are you going to see the larger vulnerability and the larger pullback in interest rate sensitive parts of the economy? It quite clearly is Canada. So that hooks back into David Wolf's comment earlier that if you think about you know economies around the world entering recession, you know the probability of Canada, you know certainly experiencing a more severe outcome is is very high. Just given that interest rate sensitivity is much higher in Canada relative to other economies around the world. And just to to add on to that, Pamela, circling back to the process and modeling point, the markets are not priced for that. Canadian assets, Canadian bonds, Canadian dollar. None of those are priced for that more severe outcome in Canada versus in the U.S. And the biggest reason for that is the models aren't going to catch this. They can't catch this because the models have never seen a period in time where Canada was so much more interest rate sensitive, so much more leveraged, so much more housing dependent than the U.S. So the models all say, well, what's going to happen in the U.S. is going to happen in Canada because that's the way it usually works. In this case, again, because Canada is so much more interest rate sensitive in a way that's never been true before, a given increase in interest rates, so we've seen the bank basically matching the Fed, is going to have much more severe effects in Canada. So the way that we would expect that to play out, not just in the economy, but again, the market is discounting that the Bank of Canada, like the Fed, is going to keep raising rates, get to around 3.5% and then start cutting next year. If that's what the Bank of Canada is doing, the Fed is going a lot more because ultimately the Canadian economy can't take as high rates as the U.S. can. So I, I guess that is sort of a question. If I could bring that back to you, David, talk one, when will the Bank of Canada have seen enough? What does the Bank of Canada need to see? Maybe it's through models that don't work well, but I'm just curious. Like, what do you think they need to see before they stop? Well, I mean, it comes back to their their core mandate. So, you know, unlike the Fed, they don't have a dual mandate. They're explicit focus is to maintain inflation between one and three percent with two as the midpoint. So what the Bank of Canada needs to see dramatically is a, a sustained decrease in underlying inflation. So they have confidence that inflation will be you know, at that low and stable level within their target band. They also need to see evidence that expectations of future inflation remain anchored within that range as well. So, you know, those are two things that are unchecked boxes right now. And to go back to the earlier comment about you know, who's the nicer portfolio manager, I mean, central bankers are not malicious people. They're not purposely, I mean, they need to cause a recession. They're not you know, doing this to just spite the economy. They need to do this because that's what's required to bring you know, inflation back down. So in some sense, you know, the, the, the struggle with, with the Bank of Canada is that they know that there's a big part of the economy that's over levered that will be sensitive to what they're doing. And, you know, it's it's going to be frustrating if if underlying inflation and that can be tied into wages and, and price pressures more generally, if that's not falling and, and there's still evidence that the housing market is really correcting such that it started to already, you know, that's a lot of damage that has to be reflected across, you know, Canada's economy. So when we think about it from the allocation decisions that we make, we generally, you know, have a certain amount of hesitation within investing in Canada. The primary vehicle, though, that we express that view through, I think, is is the currency. That's one of the powerful adjustment mechanisms that if you can imagine a scenario where, you know, the, if the Bank of Canada keeps pace with the Fed and really hurts the housing market, then that's much weaker economic growth, which is negative for the Canadian dollar. Similarly, if the Bank of Canada blinks because the damage done to the economy or the housing market in particular is too much for them to bear, 
then that interest rate differential between Canada and the U.S. starts to open up in favor of the U.S. dollar. So that's another path in which you can imagine a scenario where the Canadian dollar does depreciate potentially pretty significantly over the medium term. So that's just the link you know, that's important that we want to think about between you know, the views on, on Canada's economy and some of the levers that we can pull as asset allocating portfolio managers. David Wolf, maybe you could take us through broadly sort of the positioning based on partially what, what David talked just laid out there, the currency included. But broadly, how do you look at the next while in terms of positioning? You'd mentioned that you had more of a tilt to Canada than you might normally because of the commodity story sort of over the last year. Yeah, so I think it's actually important here to differentiate between two elements of our process. There's the active allocation process where we're tilting the funds relative to their strategic allocation and their benchmark. And then there's how we craft the strategic allocation of the benchmark in terms of how much Canada we have and how much in the way of foreign assets we have. So what David was talking about is our active process. And I guess what I was talking about earlier as well, which is how much Canada do we hold relative to benchmark. And that was as of six months ago, above benchmark, or at least as as neutral as we've gotten at any point over the past four or five years, because there were some favorable tailwinds, particularly with respect to commodity prices and some hedging against the broader inflationary environment. As David talked about, those tailwinds are ebbing and we're seeing increasing headwinds from the rise in interest rates and the interest rate sensitivity. And that has prompted us to reduce our Canada positioning to a more significant underweight level. So that's the relative tilting. On an absolute basis, we still own a fair bit of Canada, both on the equity and fixed income side and the currency as well. And our benchmarks are crafted such that even if we're underweight Canada, we still have pretty strong representation. And the reason for that is we've done an awful lot of modeling. And (laughs) that's a word that I just, uh, uh, I know cast some aspersion on earlier, but it's important, as I mentioned, as an anchoring process for all of us in this business. And the work that we've done, basically looking at, if we don't know anything else, just structurally, how much Canadian equity do we want? How much foreign equity do we want? And we've done this in various different ways. And what we tend to converge on is something in the range of 25 to 50% Canadian equity and 50 to 75% foreign equity. And the reason is Canada is 3% of the global market. But if you just match that and don't have any home bias, you're really missing out on some of the diversification potential in the Canadian market because Canada is quite different than the rest of the market, particularly the value and commodity tilt. And you're going to get a lot of volatility from your foreign investments. How, how much of that is U.S. versus the rest in terms of foreign so we tend to benchmark it in a, a market cap weighted way. So the non-Canadian will be roughly half U.S. and the remainder between uh, Europe, Japan and emerging markets. But to, to complete the thought, if you have full Canadian exposure, you're obviously only exposed to 3% of the global market. You're not taking advantage of diversification and, and return opportunities elsewhere. So somewhere in the middle, conceptually seems right. And quantitatively, again, we end up somewhere close to 40% Canada and 60% foreign. So when we're talking about being underweight Canada, it's underweight relative to that split. But relative to the global market basket, we retain, and I think it's important to retain, 
some degree of home bias and a fair bit of exposure to Canada. David Tuckle, am I missing the point to ask if models change going forward due to you know what we've seen over the last little while, or is it just sort of the point that everyone's got a model and that's not all that you can do? I'm just curious if you see a bit of a changing of the guard in that regard. Yeah, I mean, models will grow and learn, and every new data point is something that models can incorporate and, and improve upon. And you know, that's all well and good if everything is is a repeated process with well-defined parameters. But you know, we've seen some pretty unique events over the last couple of years, whether that's you know a global pandemic or the policy response in terms of really unorthodox programs and 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 steps taken by central banks. So. As long as we're coloring outside the lines, you're going to find that those traditional models that are premised on you know, a, a relatively benign period of history prior to what we've experienced will be missing a lot of what's going on. So I know there are many people working behind the scenes to try to improve the modeling process, but you know, predicting the future is hard and predicting the nature of the shocks that we're going to encounter is, is even more difficult. So you know, there's always gonna be scope, I think, for us to examine where markets are vulnerable and take our positioning decisions accordingly to try to exploit that mismatch between you know, what models are, are seeing and the way that we see the world. Yeah, fascinating. David Wolf, just a final comment uh, in any particular way that you'd like to leave investors with? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, it, it may be boilerplate, but you know, diversification is, is something that, that we pursue relentlessly in what we manage. And when you're uncertain about the future and this is a highly uncertain time, not surprisingly. You really want to reinforce that kind of diversification, and we're doing that. But one of the ways that we're trying to do that, again, in the earlier comment about things changing and models maybe not catching it, is that where we get the diversification from. So traditionally in you know 60-40 type portfolio, you're going to get a lot of that diversification just from owning bonds versus stocks. Because bonds and stocks are going to be negatively correlated. And so when one goes up, the other goes down and you have a mitigation of risk and strong return. And it's been a great environment for 20, 30 years. That has changed and it's changed because of inflation. So if you think about if you have a demand or a growth shock, stocks will go up and bonds will go down and vice versa. But if you have an inflation shock to the upside, both stocks and bonds go down at the same time, which is what we saw the first half of the year. So bonds are less of a good diversifier than has been the case previously. And so because of that, we're being more creative in the diversification in the, the products that we run. In particular, one area that still is quite interesting from a diversification negative correlation point of view is in currency and particularly the US dollar, which is to say that when stocks and bonds are both going down because inflation is going up and the Fed is tightening, the US dollar is gonna to tend to go up, which was the case not so much today, obviously, with the CPI print, but the first half of the year. And in that environment, that's a way that we can play defense and diversify when bonds aren't doing the trick. So we're always looking for those kinds of opportunities to provide the kind of diversification ahead of just the, the and I'll finish on this, the standard model that would suggest if you just own some bonds against your stocks, you're going to be fine. It's great to have time with each of you, David Bolt, David Talk, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. 
You can visit fidelity.ca for more information on future live webcasts, and don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thanks again. See you next time.